Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Crypto Market Watch. I'm your host, Marsh Frost, and as ever, I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Nick. How are you? Yeah, not bad, mate. Alive. It's been mental, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely mental. More, just more craziness, of course. It's insane. But yeah, that's what we're talking about today. Yeah, we're going to talk about the subject of the hour, probably going to be the subject of the year, maybe longer, depending on what happens. We're going to talk about, well, I suppose we haven't actually officially come up with the name of this yet, but it's a combination of banking collapse, contagion, and... Yeah, we should, at the end of the episode, come up with the title of the episode. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good <laughs> idea, actually. Yeah. yeah, I like that. Yeah, so this is going to be... It's going to cover a lot of different areas from traditional finance all the way through to DeFi and on to DAOs. So, yeah, I suppose let's quickly, we'll just talk about where the markets are at super quickly and we'll just briefly get into that a bit. And then I think this the main body of this topic is going to touch on the current market sentiment and where the world's at the moment. So we probably don't need to dive into that too much in the beginning. So should we have a quick look at the markets? Yeah, it's hard to talk about the markets without talking what's just happened. Mm. So, yeah, we've just come out of the tail end of last week. So it's the 15th of March today. So whenever that was. A couple of banks collapsed, basically. And not just... The first one was a crypto bank, Silvergate. Yeah. So... This is a bank that basically serviced a lot of the crypto industry. It's one of these prog- progressive banks. Let's call them like that. There's a few of these sort of slightly more maverick banks out of there that do that service slightly more emerging markets, such as the crypto industry. And yeah, Silvergate collapsed. I think that was on the was that the Wednesday last week. I can't remember. Anyway, it happened like first. And then on the Friday, it was announced that Silicon Valley Bank had essentially gone bust. Yeah. And this threw the entire like global markets into disarray, but largely only the crypto markets were open. They literally said, yep, bank's gone under, and then let's everyone go home for the weekend <laughs> apart from crypto was still open yeah for the weekend and yeah it was this spooked me more than the ftx thing because die depegged and die is my bank <laughs> like my if die goes down i go down yeah we were talking about this over the weekend and i woke up on saturday morning Nice and fresh and early. I'm like, oh, nice night's sleep. And then what's the first thing I do every morning is just look at Twitter and look at crypto markets and everything. It's a, it's an obsession. It's not healthy. But I thought you were going to say, you tell your <laughs> wife that you love her or something. <laughs> yeah, of course. But yeah, it's crypto Next. first. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and Dai was at 88 cents. Yeah, and the sinking feeling in my stomach was like, "Oh my god, surely not!" And it took me a while to figure out what was going on. But basically, USDC had depegged, and USDC had depegged because a huge amount of their float, an indeterminate amount of their float, 
so basically stable coins like that they've got all the money you put money in the box and they give you back some digital money and the principle is they've got all the money you can just cash it back in but actually it's not as simple as that they have to make money what's the point in doing any of it at the end of the day if you're just taking everyone's all i've got is 80 billion dollars worth of risk and i'm making no money so they've got to make money how do they make money what they do is take the money that's in the bank and buy securities with it and that usdc's position has always been yeah we only use the most legitimate banks to do this stuff we're not yoloing these assets into commercial paper and other wobbly stuff that supposedly tether was up to so tether done this but te- i'm guessing here but tether were like going long on bitcoin and other stuff not long yield treasury bonds and things that are con- considered to be the safest securities when it comes to this kind of stuff yep. risk profile very low but basically what they've got is a lot of their money wrapped up in i think they're called held to market securities or something like that or held to maturity securities so basically these are like things that time out in four years i if i'm going to buy this bond that matures over a four-year time scale at the end of it i pick up the principal plus the promised yield so banks are largely holding this stuff on their balance sheet and then they have a float which is like cash which is in case anyone wants to get their money out and the problem is usdc had a huge amount of their float in silicon valley bank and it was an indeterminate amount no one really knew how much the, there was a hole in that and worst case scenario usdc have now that's done an ftx it's gone forever this is what everyone thought on saturday morning that bank's done it's burned to zero like it's an ftx number two and i actually think one of the big questions is this crypto's fault which we might come to a little bit later now i do think there's been a halo effect from ftx which is i don't trust this box anymore that i put my money in and if it that box goes to zero i go to zero and that's what people thought had happened to silicon valley bank so that meant the usdc was running a hard deficit and potentially there's this bank run scenario where everyone just basically usdc is gone forever it's done and everyone's just starts redeeming and then you run through your cash flow and now you have to stop withdrawals because you don't have any liquid assets to give back to the people who want their money back every bank is in this position this is how it all this is how fractional reserve works yeah it's right? <laughs> fractional reserves right this is the regulation this is following regulation this is all regulated banks this is normally we're talking about some shit coin that's blown up or some other absurdity that happens in the crypto market this is by the book 100 how you should do it traditional finance yeah the essentially blew up now again there's a lot of people saying it's crypto's fault now i do think there was an influence now i'm gonna say i don't think it's crypto's fault i think crypto saw it first i think crypto is like at the most wobbly volatile end of the market that's where it lives out in the realm of chaos pure volatility and 
uncertainty and randomness. That's what crypto is about. Noise. You're going right into the noisy markets. So it's super volatile. It's mental. That's what it should be. That's what it is. But there was a lot of... So Silicon Valley Bank, they're all tech people. So a lot of their LPs will have had big exposure to crypto. And yeah, there's a material like halo effect of what's going on from FTX. The biggest one for me is the lack of trust people have now. It's got nothing to do with crypto. It's that people are starting to distrust black box centralized systems that they can't see inside. So everyone thought the worst was happened and there's now a $3 billion hole in USDC. So it depegged and there's that was it got re- reflexively underpriced in a sense that 88 cents wasn't that rational. But again, the other halo effect from Luna and UST was people had seen a stablecoin go to zero. So there was, and I think it was the Brits waking up or Europe waking up potentially watching the stablecoin go to 88 cents. And, and that was when you should have sold in UST because it was going to zero. But yeah, ultimately, USDC depegged and then die because it's now a whole chunk of USDC got priced exactly the same, which in my view is the market is wrong (laughs) on that. Um, But yeah, crazy times, man. Yes, you said something really interesting there, which was people were becoming less trusting of black boxes. This might be a hope of mine. Yeah. And maybe I'm projecting. But really, it's true. There's... When you don't know what's going on, there's a level of transparency on Circle that's actually far in advance of most financial systems. Circle being the entity that sort of runs USDC. But in any case, they like their Twitter account was dead on Saturday. Total radio silence. Nothing. You couldn't look at their books. It's no. all it, it's they report once an epoch, whenever that is, like once a quarter or whatever. What's going on today? Who knows? And but one one thing is for sure is like that. I don't think it's whether people have come to terms with it yet. I think people have had the reaction. I don't think they've yet processed that what they should not be trusting is centralized black boxes that you can't see inside. Because the these this facade of a financial construct that you're putting your money in, there's actually an organization on the other side that are doing things with your money that might be reckless, which was certainly the case with FTX. But what's interesting about Silicon Valley Bank is actually not really. So No, they, not at all, actually. They literally yeah. were following the playbook. Yeah, they, they actually did everything by the book. Yeah. There was some people like, going on on Twitter about how they've been reckless or whatever, but... I it think seemed that- to me more like a mismatch. It was like, okay, so you've got like mortgage-backed securities, which yeah. maturity date is like, it could be huge, right? Yeah. And then you've got the need to have liquidity in the short term. So you've got this like mismatch of... So that this is the issue, right? So largely what's... They're doing what banks should do. Actually, banks are mostly these treasury bonds. And the problem was, as the Fed have hiked rates, they start losing money on those every 
long duration yes product that they've bought the pre on the zero inflation on the low inflation low rates regime was a good trade at the time but now the context has changed and they're just it's just starts eating their balance sheet and this is the true this is true of all banks yeah. there's a 700 billion dollar hole deficit run down in on all the banks just projecting when people bought these treasuries when people bought these assets when they did and then just projecting forward yeah there's a 700 all banks have these holes have these balance sheet holes because that's what happens when you raise rates now and the point is to do that to squeeze the banks so they stop giving out money to lower inflation like the point is to crunch the banks so they stop yoloing money at people yeah now there's an argument that the silicon valley group being silicon valley yoloed the money at people because that's what silicon valley does right they yolo money they punt five million dollars at some thin wedge app that's the new delivery but for ice cream or something and 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 like they'll just go yeah whack five million dollars and that's their, that this was the customer of silicon valley bank yeah now what i think this is my take on it but what i think has happened is like there was a bull run and it was the crypto bull run fed a lot of this but a lot of the vcs were rich it was yolo investment spray and prey season right where everyone was just like you were being criminally stupid by not yoloing into the latest shitcoin that was the paradigm for two years and then when essentially the all market crash happened but particularly in crypto the tap turned off and vcs flipped reflexively bearish so basically everyone's actually all of the stuff that we were going to invest in actually i'm going to downgrade i'm going to now i get to reprice it actually all the valuations were silly we were paying we were buying defi monkey soccer at 150 million valuation what was going on there was definitely this like huge hype wave that drove a lot of like crazy investment so basically the vc tap was on and all these tech bros going out building all their stuff where it will everyone was on half a million dollars a year like everyone's got the penthouse flat and your engineers are superstars and you know it's all champagne and lovely meals and all that sort of stuff and then the music stops and actually oh the vcs aren't throwing money at us anymore and we have to actually spend what's in the bank so we had a year of vcs have switched off essentially and everyone's spending their balance sheet so with huge burn rates with yeah with silicon valley burn rates right so i'm billion i'm burning a million dollars a month and the and that's what's happened to their balance sheet so not only did they have this big epic hole growing from the securities that they're holding going underwater but also their clientele are all burning through their money like there's no tomorrow and it's not being recapitalized. And then I believe 
people start to get onto this. And then among that Silicon Valley group, they start panicking, pulling all their money out. And I believe Peter Thiel, yeah, that's like, like big clips of like big chunks of money out to, oh, it's weird. He basically said, it's time to recapitalize the fund, guys. Yeah, I think and he like, said to all his startups in his portfolio, trying to pull out. Well, he basically, it's just, he's got LPs and he's basically, it's, so people commit funds and then when they say, we're going to invest, they'll go and call those that money in from the LPs, which generally means taking the money out of the bank and sending it to Peter. And that's what he did. So that basically panicked everyone. Silicon Valley Bank, and this is where the numbers don't quite add up. They announced they had a $2 billion hole and that they were going to sell their stock or they were going to do a kind of stock raise. Basically, we're going to dump our bank equity into the market to raise, to cover the hole. Yeah, And then everyone front-run them and dumped the stock. So the SVB stock fell through the floor and they halted trading. And that was the moment when it was determined it's over. So basically, when the banking stocks go through the floor, that is on their balance sheet. That's their equity that essentially backs the enterprise. And yeah, so when I think it's a merger of a few of these things, the sort of macroeconomic environment, the shift in emerging tech funding and venture capital and also a bit of classic bank run panic that just ran everything through. So not many people saw it coming and especially Circle who as of Friday had most of their redemption float or some big chunk of their redemption float in Silicon Valley Bank and then just clocked off and left the stablecoin depegging over the weekend saying absolutely nothing until about, I think it might have been Sunday, where they basically came out and said, all the redemptions are going to happen, we're fine. And the communication at that point was good, but it was radio silence for a long time. And I think it's, and the reason why I think that happened, if it's been very kind to them, is that the environment around Stable. So basically, you've got the Doquans of this world going, steady lads, stay in the stablecoin. Deploying funds now. I'm going to save this. Yeah. I'm going to prop this up. So there's a lot of people who have got good reason to be damn annoyed at Doquan for telling them to stay in the thing that went to zero. And I think that's going to... I think that's his downfall. All of his mad lad tweets at that time are going to be dragged out and used to hang him because he was promising people he was going to save that stable coin and consequently everyone's dead scared about saying they're going to redeem it if they're not sure which makes it worse so obviously that just like every lawyer <laughs> there's 70 lawyers they've probably got on the books yeah we're like in a war room fretting over what to say about those tweets and it was just really weird the one they left it hanging on was just like yeah we're wrecked <laughs> basically it's like we're very and bas- what they left it on was you better bail this out 
to so what then happened over the weekend was that every Silicon Valley tech bro, so this is the All In podcast crew, and yeah. it's those lads, Jason Kalianis and, Chapman, and yeah, yeah, those lads. <laughs> they were all like literally saying, if they if the government don't back this bank. Let's go and get a guns and <laughs> like, mad. In mad Max. Yeah, it was like literally. It's like he's got Monday and he's got literally a gif of Mad Max and it's yeah. like guns and get your guns and gasoline, boys. It's going down. <laughs> to, the, in their defence, what I will say is this: is what they were talking about is backing depositors because it wasn't about backing the bondholders or the shareholders. It was like back with depositors who basically yes. used the bank, sixteenth biggest in America has followed all the regulation and got rugged. If you're a shareholder or a bondholder, you're a risk taker by that's not if you get rugged as a shareholder, that's life. Yeah, to be fair to them, that they were like that they were saying that the investors in the bank should be wrecked. Yeah, exactly. Right? That's the risk they that they wrecked. took on. Yeah, hundred percent. That's not the problem. The bank equities in the order of two hundred and fifty mil right, yeah. or whatever, that's gone. Yeah. It's not that much. It's when the it's when the whole is bigger than the government have to. So that basically woke everyone up to what FDIC insured means. Yes. Everyone thought he meant something very different. Yeah. That? So people, a lot of people, I'm surprised this misconception was still so widespread, but a lot of people thought FDIC insured means if these goes down, the government bail it out. Yeah. I'm surprised. Even I knew it was 250K. I thought it was actually a bit less. I think it, it's it is in the UK. I think it's in the UK. It's less than a hundred k. It's but the scheme is it's got a cap. Yeah. And a lot of these people had hundreds of millions <laughs> in an account or something, yeah, and, and, and their mortgages and everything. Yeah, yeah. Getting the two hundred fifty k back as we were burning that on Friday. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So two hundred fifty k is like really not going to help out there, which is why they were going absolutely ape shit because. They're, all of their portfolio companies just basically go to zero together. So those lads were like super on Saturday. They must have had an interested Saturday. I was freaking out about die pegging <laughs> now to pay me rent. They were like, I've lost billions. Like yeah. not just my liquid capital, but all my investments going to zero in one go. Yeah, isn't centralization great? You know what I mean? It's like the, there's if you've got all your eggs in one basket and you're just like, yeah, these guys are great. And it's actually just a few dozen suits running a balance sheet. It's like, that's a ridiculous thing when you think about it. It's, it you know, we're probably going to touch this a bit later on, but what I found really weird, a weird narrative was that, oh, this is okay. It's only regional banks. And what will happen is banking will consolidate into the big four or big five banks in America and everyone's going to be grand. And I was like, aren't, isn't that just like even bigger a risk point? <laughs> You've got now only four points of failure rather than having 500 or a thousand. Like you want a thousand silver gates or a thousand SVBs. You don't want it to be in a bank which is too big to fail, quote unquote. Yeah. You're just basically pushing the risk curve further down the line and it becomes a bigger risk. So I was thinking about this the day in the context of banking regulations. Yeah. So regulations as we've talked about before, are basically do it this way, right? There is a way that not only we don't recommend this, you have to do it this way. Yeah. And it will shape the practices around banking and finance 
in a meaningful way. Now, the idea being that it's all in the positive direction. Like the way that you've made everyone do it is correct. But what if it isn't? You've just made everyone do the thing exactly the same way. And if that way you do it is wrong, then you are really screwed because the practice that everyone is doing has been unified. Yes. There's no diversity. You're set up for systemic failure. Yeah, this it's the, like, Taleb, Nassim Taleb talks about anti-fragility. And he talks about this idea that all these diverse, independent, essentially autonomous actors doing something in different ways is stronger than a system that is ultimately everyone's doing it the same way. And the interconnectivity and the interrelationship between all these disparate and diverse actors creates an anti-fragile system. Whereas what we're seeing now, so in after all this, like just a few hours ago, they halted trading on French banking stocks. So since then, all banking stocks are collapsing. Some of them 60, 70, 80%. Yeah. So why are they any different to Silicon Valley Bank? There was nothing exceptional about Silicon Valley Bank. It was one of the biggest. I think it was 16th. 18th, 16th biggest in the world. Yeah. It's the biggest banking collapse. Definitely in the US. I'm not sure if it's in the world, but 16th in the US. That's probably the same, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's banks in China yeah, you've well, never heard way, of. It's, it, it was a whale. And yeah, it, and the, but this is, and just made me think, there's nothing absolutely that exceptional about the way that they were working. It's the way everyone works because we've told banks to all operate in exactly the same way for compliance reasons. And actually, there's no diversity in the way that this is done because it's been regulated in such a fashion to make everyone do it in the same way. And that creates a fragile system. Now, this is a live thing. I don't, there's, this is not the last bank to go down in this wave. It can't be. Now, I think the Silicon Valley Bank probably caught the first brunt of it. Like, for me, like crypto is like the crest of the wave. Right, we see it first because we're, in the coal mine. I like to think yeah, 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 <laughs> we're like if everything goes wobbles here. It's not that crypto's causing it; it's that crypto sees the effects first because it's like a hypersensitive, ultra liquid market, and it's always you know, on, as you said, always on twenty four seven. It's it's like the it's like the, the tendrils at the end of the octopus. If you like, it's like the right at the tips. Of it but ultimately it's that's where most of the movement happens but really it's all part of the same system right the money going into crypto comes from somewhere it goes out somewhere it's just like crypto is just the tokenized craziness at the end of the tentacles um i think what's really interesting with what you said as well is that generally the world seems to be pushing towards more homogeneous complex systems so they're trying to force homogeneity across Yes. Things. Yeah. And so it, that's been that's been a big part of the organizational narrative is about squashing out complexity. It's so like com- complexity. I'm like big fan of complexity science and won't go into it too much. But basically, when systems are complex, you can't predict them. 
and they're fundamentally unpredictable. You don't know what's going to happen because it's too big. There's too many interconnected things going on. So you get these emergent events. And the emergent events are fundamentally unpredictable and radically new. And you will have to create something new. You'll have to adapt to that new thing. Some of them are small, some of them are big, but fundamentally it's unpredictable. And a big part of the paradigm it, for the last 50 years or so, and a lot of it's been driven by kind of systems thinking ideas that are informed by this, but the idea that you can reduce complexity, you can reduce these emergent things, stop them from happening. But you can't. They always happen. If the system is complex, it's complex. There's no like thing that you can do. So like regulation as a paradigm is one of these things for taming complexity. Stop everything, everyone doing it in such a mad different way. Force them all to do it in a particular direction and we get predictability. But really, you can't escape complexity. And what you might have done by making everyone do it the same way is actually create the emergent event that you were trying to avoid in the first place. But this time, it's a really nasty one. <laughs> And we've stored up all this energy, yes. all this like chaos that wants to escape. So we keep pushing it, it down the curve, don't we? We're like, and, this, oh. and this is where you get black swans. Yeah. Which is like all of these things at the same time. And when one, all these fragile systems go pop and just collapse. Because we and keep having shocks, right? There's little shocks that people aren't quite connecting yet. Like you've got the UK pension thing that nearly happened. Yeah. That was last year, right? Late last year. And then you've got other shocks as well going throughout the system but everyone's like, it's okay <laughs> we'll just get a, just we're going to throw money at that and that will go away but all they're doing is stay storing that energy to be later released at some other point the way i think of it so i used to think of i was introduced to these complex systems ideas from in biological systems in yeah emergent micro colonies slime, slime molds, molds. i knew yeah. you were say that <laughs> uh, so yeah i did biophysics essentially as a phd and i think of these things what would happen is when you put these things live in a kind of equilibrium so these complex systems can sit in a state that everything's going pretty nice for a long period and then the smallest perturbation can trigger a big cascading effect so something changes it might be very tiny but it escalates into a big thing that causes the system to collapse but the probability of that is generally quite low because they actually have these systems in the where the complex system can have these kind of like self-regulating processes which actually allow you to deal with lots of shocks because of the interrelatedness and everyone's got their own worldview doing different things independently. And because it's not that centralized, it becomes quite resistant. So slime mold, you can't chisel off rocks. It's like ridiculously resistant. But yeah, basically the sort of where we're at in these complex systems bit, if you perturb it a lot, something mad is likely to happen. And for me, that was the pandemic. So I've been expecting this since we did lockdowns in 2020 or 2021. Yeah, yeah. I think you can't shut the world down for 18 months and not expect... 100%. A ma what the equivalent of it is like... You could essentially cause a cascading failure of a complex system by dropping like a little pinprick in it and it butterfly effects out and collapses. But if you stick a big spike through the middle of it, that opportunity, like the impact, the cascading impacts of all these 
tail events that fall out from it. It's like a tsunami. It picks up. It starts as a little ripple, and then by the time it hits shore, it's like massive. And we've done that. And this is all of that, the ripple effects of that tide from the pandemic cascading through the financial system. And everything that was wobbly and broken, every table leg that was a bit wobbly is falling over. And that's generally what happens in these things. They, things collapse and reemerge stronger. Yeah. And it's one of the big reasons why I'm such a proponent of decentralization is because centralization creates this fragility. And we are genuinely centralizing at the global level now. Yep. And there's like singular points of failure. Like if you like, just look, th- th- things are traded around by bots in the trillions in volume a day. So there's markets are held together. So at the core of these markets, there's a very small amount of players trading massive size with algorithms against each other. Ultimately, the whole world financial system comes down to a handful of players with bots shifting huge volume against each other. Yeah. And yeah, we basically we saw one of the what happens when one of these players drops out. And again, we saw the effects of it in crypto directly because it was open yeah. over the weekend. So the in, in many ways, like crypto being a 24-7 thing is like the, it's like the pulse of the markets. I think it was like a Geiger meter. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, there's a rational argument to say. And what came out was like, it's all crypto's fault stories immediately. And I was thinking, look, you... It's possible, actually, that there's like the ripple effect. We're the little pinprick in the complex system that causes this ripple effect. But it's not like you can stop it. It's like you could shut crypto down and another little ripple effect will turn up somewhere else. It's not, you can't put a lid on these things. It is possible it's crypto, but it's also possible that, like you say, it could be shutting down global supply chains or it could be putting interest rates to like zero forever, or it could be printing money infinitely. Yeah, I mean, and massively increasing the money supply, literally airdropping free money to people. Yeah. All of this stuff is obviously, like people, like it was obvious. I was looking at all of this stuff at the time thinking. Mind blown by it. In a few years, something's going to turn up that's really going to be like, even if this all pans out, and actually did largely pan out, at the end of the day so far um, like we're well not that and, far and we ain't out of the woods this is yeah. the thing and the markets themselves are a big massive complex system and the turbulence that we see in the markets is like a precursor to the real world effects downstream but yeah i mean the whole the collapse that's happening literally as we're talking now it's i think banks have just shut so <laughs> it's happening in crypto while they're shut but they're all, like it just moves around the world at night right and it just all feels incredibly fragile and now is the time to be looking at ways of diversifying the way that we do banking and looking at ways of building trust through transparency 
But instead, and, we're going the other direction. <laughs> That's well, what's happening. at the end of the day, if mi- millions, potentially billions of people get rugged by banks collapsing, then they can learn that way. Or you can actually start... And we should be exploring this at the systemic level. This is not... Yes. Governments have been got this the wrong way around of trying to squash this out, and it's actually what it needs. The solution, yeah. It's like it's what it needs to build more robust systems to actually stop everything falling to bits. Instead, again, and instead, what they're doing is they're looking at it, go, oh, we can use this for like control. <laughs> we can well, use it for yeah. command and control. And this, and this is it. We're at this fork in the road, right? Where you can keep going with this essentially fool's errand where you think you can contain a complex system by making everyone comply to a way of doing things. And you might succeed for a bit, but ultimately you get these catastrophic collapses as and everything. So you really just better like allowing more complexity into the system and building better agile systems of dealing with stuff when it comes up. So just building better approaches of going, this could happen. What have we got? Building contingency plans. And just generally not putting all your eggs in one basket. So yeah, I think it's like, I I really see DeFi and DAOs having a huge piece to play in this. Because again, like just even the cash floats, like the fact that USDC shut down at the weekend and there isn't some mechanism that allows people to get money into their bank account caused the DPEG. So the way I've been looking at this is, all right, so how do you price stable coins? So a stable coin should pray should trade at a dollar if it is materially the same as a dollar. It's the same as having a dollar note in your hand. Now, arguably, it isn't already because my local gas station doesn't accept USDC. But I can put my USDC in DeFi and get yield with it. So there's a utility question. I think, actually, there's an argument that stablecoins give you more utility than your paper notes because you can do all this new fancy digital stuff with them. But there's a risk. And the risk is that you can't swap your USDC back into a dollar when you want to and get it back into paper notes. And actually that risk is far greater than people had previously priced in. So really we've discovered that there's huge gaps in redemption periods that there's when banks are shut you can't redeem your money and that means actually usdc should from now on always trade until it opens at the weekend it should be 95 cents <laughs> in my view because there's some banks could collapse and you're stuck in it at the weekend there's no reason why this wouldn't happen again what like where's the rest of usdc's money why aren't those banks going to collapse? But really, actually, the USDC you've got in tokenized form is actually more valuable than the tokenized form you have in your bank. Yes. 
So they, that really is useless. That's just a ledger entry. Like, I, if turns out USDC isn't backed anymore, I still can do something with that USDC. Yeah. <laughs> There's enough people with it that go, actually, shall we just say it's a dollar again or something? I don't know. Let's, like, it's worth something. But actually, the ledger entry you've got on your app, your banking app, is genuinely worthless. There's a meme that was flying around at the weekend. I'm going to just share it with you now, Nick, but I will put it in the show notes. And it really made me tuck in. It's literally what you just said. It's Morpheus from The Matrix in the Kung Fu dojo scene. Yeah. He's like leaning forward and he's, you think that's your money in your account? You know? <laughs> yeah. like, completely I mean, doubt it. And again, the, well, so I can go and get take my debit card and withdraw cash from that balance out. At any time, 24-7, yeah. 365. So that's one of the reasons why like banks have that trust. Now, yes, the, there is an element of trust there, but ultimately these things are so big. That, and this is where this kind of too big to fail thing comes in. If HSBC goes down or something like that, it's over. <laughs> it's like, over. Yeah. There's like literally the big three banks went down in the UK. Obviously, everything else goes. It's literally over. We just we're it's Mad Max time. So the it can't do. So the bank, the government will do everything it can to keep them alive, and that's what they do, and that's why they have that trust. But these private entities that essentially run these stable coins don't have necessarily have government backing, and. Yeah, I think there's a real thing with stablecoins. They rationally shouldn't trade at a dollar. Now, so that's a market is wrong. We should potentially have a section called the market is wrong, <laughs> where each, I mean, like the people like scoff at the idea that the market is wrong, but it's really wrong quite often. One of which is that USDC and DAI were trading in parity throughout this whole thing. So basically the market is saying DAI is USDC. USDC is depegged. There's a lot of USDC in the DAI treasury. That means DAI is USDC. And it isn't at all. DAI was open at the weekend. DAI, make, make a DAI was open at the weekend. And they passed a governance vote. Maker holders changed the system to limit the amount of USDC that was making it into MakerDAO. So be people were using the peg stability module, the PSM, to exit their USDC into DAI. So there was a lot of people who were like, I don't want to hold USDC, I want to hold DAI. And basically there's a limit, and it was a lot, like a billion dollars, essentially where you can just go directly to the chain and exchange USDC for DAI. And that hit its cap. So a billion dollars of USDC went into DAI on Saturday. And they changed it to cap it at 250 mil. And that cap filled up each time throughout the weekend. So clearly the market, that chunk of the market felt more comfortable holding DAI than USDC. But what that meant was is that MakerDAO got more DAI in it, more USDC in it. So they went from having a treasury of around 40-something percent of USDC up to 58%. But really, MakerDAO is a decentralized thing, 
DAI is a permissionless asset. USDC isn't. This is why I hold DAI and not USDC. And ultimately, there's a DAO there that could do all sorts of stuff, actually an arbitrarily open amount of things, to get DAI back to its peg. So I trust that DAO to get DAI back to its peg. I absolutely did not trust USDC to get back to its peg. Yeah. So actually, DAI is a far more robust asset. It's got it's multi-collateral. It's not contingent on any... It's decentralized. It's got more mechanisms for keeping a peg than USDC does, which is just promising that, that we've got the notes when you need them. Deploying funds. Yeah, <laughs> we're back there again. What you what they promise is we've got... You can redeem when you need to. Yeah. And actually, you couldn't. We're actually... Make it out just kept functioning. Now, so there was a real moment of irrationality. But yeah, that Saturday morning, I was like, do I sell my dye here and take a 12% haircut and everything? It was like, it's been exceptionally painful. And I just thought, no, it's going to go back to peg. Even if you, and now I thought USDC might go to zero. It would be, have some like, oh, it, we've got to go through some prolonged redemption period where everyone has to wait months to get their money back and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, so super interesting time in the markets. We could be watching a global banking collapse. My next question, like what has to happen now for it to, A, not be a collapse? Yeah. And what has to happen now for it, B, to be the trigger point the first domino to fall for it to be collapsed. i think the first dominoes fell i think like it's True. just a matter of how far apart and how big the dominoes are yeah so there's a big domino falling and it's a matter of whether it clips another one yeah and credit swiss going down would be absolutely huge the next bigger domino <laughs> right that's the next bigger domino and actually it's coming out that oh they might not be might have done something a little bit weird with their books and they're not being yeah. entirely transparent. Yeah. Well, we just mm. found out we were cooking our books. <laughs> yeah. oh, sorry. Maybe we trusted these Swiss bankers. Maybe we shouldn't have. And that's where we're at, right? And But again, it's getting to that point, what if they go down? So there's, I don't know what's going to happen next. Credit, yeah, Credit Suisse going down would be the next big domino. The, when you're at the bigger dominoes, like nations default, and it gets like exceptionally big and messy. And at that point, we could see this like global economic crash phase two. And then we're talking a decade of global depression if that happens, <laughs> which like would be, we had the Great Depression last time round. It happened after a pandemic. Yeah, it's the same. It's very much we've followed the kind of same playbook so far. It happened. That's the data point we've got to work with. Yeah. And I can very much see how a Great Depression could happen again because the entire value concept that we've built the world of has just got really out of hand and, and is ba based on deprecated technology and really bad trust models. We're trusting entities to have done the right thing, and there's really no reason to. Yeah. How do we know everyone's... Ultimately, when everyone starts cashing in, 
and saying, I might go and get my assets into stuff that feels more real. And actually, if you look at property prices are still booming, like in London, rental prices are banging through the ceiling at the moment. And that's because people are getting into property, like tangible assets is where it's going next. I think the, so throughout this period, what was interesting, there was a day, Monday, maybe this week, where all the banking stocks were down 50, 60%. Bitcoin was up 12%. Yes, yeah, Monday. And there's, I thought that there's, there is this thesis that it's the flight to safety. The Bitcoin is this because it's got, it, it's more, it's intangible, but it's tangible in the sense that you can cryptographically prove there's only so many of them. Can't cook the books, can't lie, can't pretend that there's more Bitcoin than there is. You can do that in centralized exchanges, but ultimately, when it comes back to the chain, everyone can prove that they've got the amount. So Bitcoin has this store of value property that in theory could be the flight to safety. And that might have been a glimmer of it. But actually, uh, someone on Twitter actually came back with a really good point that was actually this is just people betting on the Fed turning the money printer back on. And actually they're just betting on more liquidity injections that runs through like crypto. That's where the whips happen at the end of the tail, right? That's where the biggest gains are. So people are jumping in to risk assets, expecting the money printer to be turned back on, which is ironic for Bitcoin, (laughs) to be honest, (laughs) that it's actually become a bet on the money printer over. I guess that's always what it has been. Yeah. And they were right though. Like the the bailout slash backstop, whatever you want to call it, that's coming. So from my understanding, and this gets a little bit tradfi for my crypto native sort of knowledge base, but essentially there's a kind of backstop float there that's been generated for such an event over many years, and it's not going to impact the taxpayers, not bailout. Only in the US, though. Only in the US. Anywhere else is... We'll be paying off the bailouts in 2008 i think my daughter's grandkids are still be paying it off probably and so that's like the tax but the argument is that the taxpayers aren't paying this out because it's coming from a earmarked fund designed for to backstop and that's where the fdic insurance pot is etc and it's about 25 billion dollars deep but there is six or seven hundred billion dollars of liability, like of assets underwater out there. So when that goes, is that enough? That's when the money printer starts coming back on. But ultimately, the crypto pumping at the moment is a bet on liquidity, which means it's a bet on lower rates because they can't keep hiking the rates because it's demonstrably collapsing the banks. Yeah. So they can't keep hiking. They just can't do it. So, look, I think the things you and I are most interested in and probably listeners of this podcast, and I think in general, people are going to become more interested in the future and where I think this episode will become quite something that's referred back to, I should think, in its own way is how do DAOs fix this? You know, you and I are pretty passionate about 
we think that DAOs can actually fix a lot of things. And that's because of the emergent nature of the community, how they're designed, all these, there's lots of factors that are going in there. How, if you were, how would you deploy a DAO? Is that a good question? Or how do you see DAOs operating in this sort of environment? And actually, is it preventative or is it posthumously fixing things? Or what do you think? I think there's many ways it could manifest. I'm sure about this. It's going to happen. There's going to be a decentralized bank in the future, and it's going to be governed by a DAO. And I think you could just watch the trajectory of DeFi. I think that you'll have very crypto native. I think DeFi entities will elaborate into more substantial entities that feel a bit more like a bank than a set of smart contracts at the front end in that they'll have more organization around them the activities actually you could have an almost a re-emergence of a human-centered like banking experience that actually was the thing that you used to get where you'd go and talk to someone ask them for help about your finances and I think like, the old what, bank what, manager how people actually yeah, yeah, the old, bank managers right yeah exactly and in theory you could have a real reemergence of a much more personal banking experience from that kind of thing but ultimately I think we'll see the DeFi mature into what the traditional banking system does but decentralized as a starter but then have new products that the banking system can't do and we'll get this like neo neo bank set up that actually isn't a neo bank that accepts crypto or does some crypto stuff it's a crypto thing that does bank and comes from the crypto side starts as a dao and ends up doing banking things and ultimately there's going to be some regulatory outcomes where they say have you put a front end on a smart contract you're a bank and people will become banks decentralized banks whether they want to or not <laughs> so they might even create their own competition by forcing people to play the banking game even though they're outside of the system so i think we'll have crypto native run-ins of into the sort of banking world i think we'll see some banks go deeper into crypto and largely because they get start getting like out they become outlaws in the game so I think you'll start to get people doing, I think regulatory arbitrage is going to pick up. So I think we're going to have a, a moment where there's global players. So the, following this, we might see a regulatory titan, and which is going to close the universe of players who can do it. And so there'll be jurisdictions that where those players can play and there'll be new and different where places where you can go and do banking that will be very crypto-native and have decentralized elements. And I think we'll just also start to see a lot more treasury transparency. So what I think we'll start to see is a hybridization of the traditional world with the crypto world. So we're going to start looking at using cryptography to provide reserve attestations so proof of reserve type pieces. And then ultimately that has to end up crypto, right? So there's going to have to be a like, you trust us to have this amount of liquid capital and it has to be verifiable 
And the way you verify it is using crypto and blockchain technologies. And that's where I think there'll be that kind of hybrid world. So I, I see the actual, the whole banking sector moving to moving into decentralized technologies in some way or another. But I also see a massive centralizing force of CBDCs and central banks gaining huge amounts of prominence, which actually could kill the banking sector because it essentially disintermediates the person directly to the money, yeah. directly to the, essentially the, to the central bank. So really massive threat to the banking industry. So yeah, it's a, like roundabout way. I think like decentralization is going to have an impact on the whole sector going forward without a doubt. But I do think we're going to see DAOs experiment with transparency and both from the DeFi angle and in other treasury management ways and things like that, that really ex expose the lack of transparency that we've had as, as normally up to this point. So I think we're going to see the, just the people, public, demand more transparency, more accountability. And I think, yeah, DAOs are going to be a huge part of that because it's just, it just bringing a world of public openness to, to this enterprise, which hasn't happened yet. Out of the things that you listed as things that you see happening, which one do you think is going to happen the soonest? I think we'll see another, I think we'll see stable coins hit the market that are a one-up on USDC and they'll use much more transparent approaches to doing what they do. Yeah. So there's entities running this, can't really talk about it too much at the moment, but there's people looking at open banking of ways that people do settlement, people like Revolut and things like that to do to open up the redemption window so it's 20 like 24 7 and so that's what needs to happen i think we need 24 7 redemption windows we need i think we'll see start to see things like proof of reserves using cryptographic tools very too very soon i think we'll have we'll see more dao elements to stable coins because the trust and transparency that will arise from a community whose job it is essentially to hassle the centralized entity for transparency and clarity. So yeah, I think the, um, yeah, it's hard to say, but I think we'll see much more the traditional world using crypto-y things and getting more transparent on the back of this. But ultimately, I think it'll converge with the DAO stuff that ha happens out in the Wild West. And I think, I think it, a lot of this actually can happen out. The US has made it quite clear that they're not interested in crypto. I think it's getting towards pretty clear that they're just openly hostile to it. Yeah. And yeah, I think that I think we'll see a huge backlash from this. You've got people like Elizabeth Warren calling for just openly blaming crypto for the whole thing. And yeah, in essence, it's... It, there's weak arguments for that. They need evidence if they're going to say it, but ultimately it's the, it's all the argument that they need to really try and crush the industry out of America. It could flip the other way. I don't know, but they might realize they're making a big mistake 
and realize it's fairly unenforceable. So give up on it. And it's mostly saber rattling, but we'll see. Yeah, it is what it will be. It's a sad day, to be honest with you. And in terms of what you would like to see next, so you talked about what you think would happen next. What would you like to see next? What would I like to see next? I don't know. I think there's, it's, do I want to see the whole banking industry collapse? No, because there's a lot of pain and suffering that's going to arise from that. I think I would like a greater acknowledgement that trust and centralization in finance is a huge issue. And I would like to see some acknowledgement that what we're building in this industry might actually help out here. It's not the threat, but it might be a solution to the problems that we're facing here. Rationally speaking, there's frailties in this system that need to happen. I'd like to see a bigger embracement of different ways of doing it rather than trying to force everyone into doing it. I think so. I'd most like to see an openness to exploration to mitigate against these events. Yeah, that'd be amazing, wouldn't it? But that that does require like a certain amount of humbleness, which I don't think we're going to Yeah, and there's a lot of people who don't want anything to change. Yeah. And yeah. they will protect the... This is always the case. There's a lot of people who want to protect the way it's running now because that's what's getting them paid. And the power around protecting the this paradigm, which is relatively new when you think about it, that industry is a relatively new one but runs the world, basically. And there's a lot of people who've got into very powerful positions there that don't want any of it threatened or changing. Just Let's just hope it carries on. Now, the market might not let them. And they might have zero choice about everything staying the same. But there's a lot of people who are going to want to keep it the same nevertheless. So huge inertia, huge resistance. And largely, I generally expect all the innovation and everything to happen outside of all of that framework. Yeah, bottom up, right? That's what crypto is effectively. Yeah, and I think it's even if they do like really draw the lines hard on regulation, I even think crazy anonymous decentralized crypto experiments will still be the future of finance. That's still where it's going to emerge out of. So yeah, it's the change is coming, whatever happens. So if we think that was a good place for us to draw that part of the episode to a close and let's talk about the next part, which is I don't want to call it rug of the week because it wasn't. It was just really bloody unfortunate. But Euler, they've been facing the their set of challenges this week. One of the actually I actually looked at the wrecked leaderboard. I didn't realise it had a leaderboard. It does uh, have a leaderboard. Yeah. And it's actually the Euler issue that just happened ranked six sixth on the rec leaderboard yeah yeah i'm really upset about this one this is yeah just oilers underneath wormhole between nomad bitmart and yeah that's so what happened here was around how much was it around 200 million 197 million dollars lost from the oiler contracts yeah and 
what it the attack itself it's a real shame it was like so i know a couple, few of the oiler team and they're some of the best and nicest and most diligent people in the space and this is why this one i find particularly upsetting because most of these other ones you can see where the kind of like negligence is you can see where the kind of scam is you can see where the where just it, where it was like obviously going to happen or something. Yeah. Whereas with Euler, they're just like a really legit DeFi outfit, very sensible. Just play it by the book. They and the, in this case, the they had six audits on these contracts, and there was one bit that got changed, which had did have an audit, but it was this function that got exploited, and basically it was a flash loan piece but it exploited an internal accounting error so they had these internal tokens e tokens and d tokens i think and they get mint and burned inside that and it allowed you to lever up on self-collateralize a very innovative mechanism but there was a an issue in the way that this logic happened internal so the internal accounting got out of whack and it was manipulated to allow them to look like they had a lot more collateral than they had. They liquidated themselves and claimed the money out through that sort of way. Yeah. So it now these funds are sitting in an EOA. So these are sitting... The best scenario... So we're at this point at the moment where Hacker has these funds. The team, Euler team, have basically said, you can keep 10%, give us back 90%. And you've got 24 hours to do it. Otherwise, this person, whoever it is, like looking over the shoulder for the rest of their lives, the problem is it might be the North Korean, might be the Lazarus group. <laughs> In which case, no amount of threats from even nation states is going to stop them, going to make them cough it up. They don't yep. care. GFA. It's done. So, yeah, it's like I'm devastated by this one. I'll be quite honest. Really knocked me sick. I was like, this if you put any contracts on mainnet it keeps you awake at night the thought of losing people's funds is really upsetting and yeah this is the thing that could happen to anyone with smart contract there's no it triggered an interest i dug up my sort of auditing piece around this there's deep frailties in the centralized auditing processes that we do and it just shows you that there's no such thing as a safe smart contract and there's no amount of auditing and diligence and good practice and fantastic engineering that can ultimately prove that someone's not going to find a bug in it um aside from so yeah for you then is there a big takeaway is there a big learn what can we learn as a project from this yeah i've been thinking about this i think there's Broadly outside of just us, it's made me come back to think about finance.vote actually in the wrecked prediction market. Yeah. If you remember. Yeah, I do, yeah. Which was the idea that we'd have a prediction market, which is the oracle is this contract's been hacked. So it's ultimately a prediction market on which which is going to get hacked first. And there's a pool of funds, there's an FVT bucket that gets paid out to whoever voted on that. Now, we can use our SBT system to essentially make sure that's the best smart contract devs in there. Now we've got a game where if they play it and are right, 
they get get some money. It involves them doing the work of going looking at these contracts. But some of these people just have a sense, right, from just which which designs are more fragile than others because they're the kind of people who understand smart contracts on a deep level. They can understand the threat vectors and the attack surface in a way that most people won't. So yeah, I think we can potentially do a prediction market piece with this. And it's it's this was in our white paper two and a half years ago or whatever. It's, I think contextually the market, this has come back to, it's a, there's a flaw in smart contracts have an attack surface. How do you price that in? And actually a prediction market on which contracts are most likely to get hacked could allow you to price in insurance pieces, for example, and also allow people to phrase their, give people an indicator to use to whether to put their money in smart contracts as well. Yeah. If there's a whole bunch of, if there's a hundred smart co- contract developers that are all betting that this is the next co- contract to get wrecked, would you put your money in it? So there's an interesting piece there. I think just the, for us, it's about risk. A lot of the smart contracts that we work with, and this is by design, don't hold funds for a long time. Yes. They route funds through them, in and out. And I don't, the idea of having a smart contract that I designed with a billion dollars in, I wouldn't be able to sleep. Yeah, <laughs> it's, like, it's interesting one, is it? Because TVL seems to be like the metric that everyone measures success by, but actually it's just like more risk there then, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. And there's, we may well end up in that position, but for me, it's okay. We've If we've got a contract like that, so I'm thinking about TVL caps, so which basically says this is the risk we're, we're willing to take. And that those caps can open up progressively over time, the longer the contracts have been on mainnet and the more times they've been audited and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, hard one. What we're doing here is truly emerging technology. It's very difficult engineering problem. We move very quickly when we should be moving a little bit more slowly. But yeah, very sad day. Good friends had a bad week on that project and yeah, I feel super sorry for them. Not their fault. It's just one of those things. Yeah, like you say, it sounds like <clears throat> I haven't gone as forensic as yourself, but they it sounds like they did all the right things as much as you can do. And uh, like this is the nature of emergent technology; things go wrong, and uh, that's indeed that's it, really, isn't it? I think we're going to wrap this episode up here. Unless there's anything you wanted to add to that, Nick? No, I think that's it. Great place to end, I think. Yeah, cool. But I think it's been a really insightful episode. This story, this saga, much like FTX, is not over. Certainly isn't. Or CBDCs, to be fair. So we've got many sort of follow-on episodes to come in the future. So just wanted to thank everybody for joining us as ever this week. If you want to get engaged or involved with us, you can find us on their Telegram or Discord or our Twitter. Again, as ever, we have a down that you're welcome to join. You can come grab an SBT or grab an NFT, depending on what your interests lie in, and come and engage with the community and the governance of our project and just be involved. So looking forward to speaking to you guys again soon. And from me, it's good night. And Nick? See you later, mate. Good night, everyone. Good night, everyone. Cheers.